How many of you have seen the 1976 film Network? Anybody? Okay, quite a few of you. There's a famous scene in which a news network anchor looks into uh, the camera and tells the viewers at home, I want you all to get up right now. I want you all to get up out of your chairs, go to your window, open it, stick your head out, and yell, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. Things have got to change, but first you've got to get mad. Then we'll figure out what to do. But first, get out of your chairs, open your window, stick your head out, and say it. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. And this is back when everyone watched the news at the same time, right? So he's trying to get everyone to open their windows and hear one another and really get riled up. This rant earned that anchor the nickname, the Mad Prophet of the Airwaves. There are a lot of people in the United States today on both sides of the political spectrum who are mad as hell and who don't want to take it anymore. Now, of course, not all of them are mad for the same reasons. Uh, But I would like to begin by reflecting on one particular cause of anger and anxiety in our country today, and then I'll widen our focus to consider some other causes as well. There are a lot of theories trying to explain exactly what is going on in the cultural moment in which we find ourselves, but one of the most helpful that I've found recently is called The End of White Christian America by Robert P. Jones. What interests me most about Jones's approach is that he offers more than merely his opinion. He has a PhD in religion from Emory University where he focused on sociology and politics, and he has a lot of experience and insight based on his work as the CEO of PRRI, that's the Public Religion Research Institute. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to conducting high-quality public opinion research. And so as he's kind of looked back over the last few decades of our country's history compared to what the polling data is showing us, Jones traces the reactions in our country to the fading influence of white Christian America. Now, even before the founding of our nation, white Protestant Christianity was the norm, and anything else was considered inferior at best and deviant at worst. But as Dylan said, the times, they are a-changing. After almost two centuries of white Christian dominance in America, in the 1960s, we began to see these series of threats to white Christian America from several countercultural fronts. We had the youth movement of the hippies, we had the sexual revolution, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the Hispanic and Chicano movement, second wave feminism, the gay rights movement, all of these kind of working both separately and in coalition um, to against providing these alternatives to the dominant narrative of white Christian America. 
Now, in the 80s, we saw this rise of the Christian right, uh, this resurgence of white Christian America. But we now live decades later in the year 2016, and we now know that there have been major demographic changes, which include an increasing religious disaffiliation among young people. And they're pushing white Christian America to and over a tipping point of losing its influence and its dominance. Not its influence, but its dominance. Now, before I proceed further, I don't want to overly demonize white Christian America. Um, Beyond giving our nation a shared aesthetic, a historical framework, a moral vocabulary, white Christian America also produced a profound amount of social capital in this country. Uh, you know, staffing, launching, founding, funding, a dizzying array of institutions from churches to hospitals to social service organizations and civic organizations, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, right? At the same time, I think we have to be honest that Uh, about the many ways that white Christian America was also a major force in this country's history in arguing that the Bible was this, uh, you know, this most important religious text and it should be used to trump secular laws in ways that not only supported slavery, but also should prevent women's rights and, you know, civil rights and equal rights for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. So in reflecting on this norm of white Christian America, Robert Jones writes, you know, questions like, so, where do you go to church? That felt appropriate, even in casual social interactions or even in business relationships. It was considered normal because one just assumed that everyone went to some church, as opposed to a synagogue or a mosque or a gurdwara or nowhere. Few gave a second thought to saying Merry Christmas to strangers on the street as opposed to a more inclusive Happy Holidays. You know, Happy Festivus, right? Uh, Blue Laws shuttered Main Street for the Sabbath. How many of you grew up in places with Sunday Blue Laws? Uh, Even though that's not everyone's Sabbath, right? In its heyday, a set of linked institutions reinforced white Christian America's worldview across generations. So you grew up going to the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association. You grew up, you know, participating in the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. You joined the Masonic Lodge, and then you were part of the local country club with limits or even outright bans on Catholic, Jews, and other minorities. White Christian America had its golden age in the 1950s after the hardship and victories of World War II and before the cultural upheavals of the 1960s. June Cleaver was its mother, Andy Griffith was its sheriff, Norman Rockwell was its artist, Billy Graham and Norman Vincent Peale were its ministers. We are now, however, more than halfway through the second decade of the 21st century, which still boggles my mind sometimes. And in contrast to the formerly dominant monoculture of white Christian America, we are well into an age that doesn't just ask for, but demands increasing recognition of diversity, of pluralism, of a multiculturalism, not a monoculturalism.
And so I've taken this time to paint a picture of white Christian America to help us better understand this cultural moment that we are in. To use one of the most blatant examples, the relentless rumors that President Obama is a secret Kenyan or a secret Muslim, is, these are all dog whistles trying to otherize him and to say, clearly, this person with black skin in the Oval Office is not one of us, not one of white Christian America. These rumors play on fears within white Christian America that our nation's first black president, who's really our nation's first biracial president, is not really one of us. He's not a Christian. He wasn't even really born here. Consider that, for example, in 2010, the year after President Obama's inauguration, a CNN poll found that about more than one quarter, about 27% of the country, harbored some doubts about Obama's citizenship. You know, a year into his presidency, 25% of our country was like, just not sure he's really a citizen. And in 2012, just before he was reelected, a PRRI survey found that nearly 4 in 10, 39% of voters, did not know the president's religious affiliation. And approximately 1 in 6, 16%, reported that they thought Obama was a Muslim. Not that there's anything wrong with that, right? But, I mean, apparently there was until it's often presented. Among white evangelical Protestant voters, the numbers saying Obama was a Muslim rose to 24%, one in four. The first African-American president, even one who is a Christian, is this highly visible symbol of the waning influence of white Christian America. And there are also less noticeable signs. Uh, In 2010, when Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens, a a white Christian Protestant, retired and was replaced by Elena Kagan, who is Jewish, we saw a shift to a United States Supreme Court that for the first time in U.S. history had no Protestant justices. The current U.S. Supreme Court has five Catholics and three Jews. To put that into perspective, there have been 12 Catholics in the entire 225-year history of the Supreme Court. Half of them, six, occupy the Supreme Court today. Similarly, only eight Jews have ever served on the U.S. Supreme Court, three of whom are sitting justices today. The times, they are a-changing. There's an adage that it's actually not paranoid if they really are after you. But here's the twist. White culture is not actually endangered. White supremacy is in danger. Christianity is not endangered. Christian supremacy is. Losing this pride of place can cause resentment. It can cause a false sense of disenfranchisement. But as you've heard me say before, loss of privilege is not the same as reverse discrimination. And what we mean by that word privilege is something at the intersection of the word privilege, advantage, and entitlement. That's what is being lost. And things really have changed. To give just a little bit of data about the loss of white privilege, in 1965, about 84% of the U.S. population was white. 1965, 84%. Today, about 63% of the U.S. population is white. 
And the U.S. Census Bureau predicts that by 2042, only 26 years from now, the United States will no longer be a majority white nation. Relatedly, population experts um, forecast that by 2060, whites will see their numbers decline for the first time in U.S. history, while the number of people who identify as multiracial will nearly triple, and the number of Hispanics and Asians will more than double. To relatedly consider some data on the loss of Christian privilege, while, many, while white Christians today remain the largest single segment of the American religious landscape, they have slipped below a majority and are now 47% of the U.S. population. Moreover, by 2051, if current trends continue, religiously unaffiliated Americans could compromise as large a percentage of the population as Protestants, a thought that was unimaginable a few decades ago, just as same-sex marriage being legal in all 50 states was unimaginable a few decades ago. But the times, they are a-changing. For a variety of reasons, some of you may be eager to dance on the grave of white Christian America. Ding-dong, white supremacy and you know, white Christian America is dead. But to others of our fellow citizens, the end of white Christian America is a cause for lament and feels like a loss of the, quote, real America. The question of whether American culture has gone downhill since 1950 divides us as Americans overall. A majority of Americans, 53%, still say that, we have ch- that America has changed for the worse since 1950, compared with 46% of Americans who say America has changed for the better since 1950. As you can perhaps guess, as you look at what is behind those divides, there are stark cleavages around race and religion. As we noted earlier, the 1950s were a time that white Christian America retained cultural dominance, due, for example, to literal Jim Crow laws that enforced racial segregation. But despite that dominance, even then, there was this anxiety that also exists today about these existential threats from an other. At that time, the fear was communism, and the chief fearmonger was Joseph McCarthy. These fears led white Christian America to make In God We Trust the official motto of the United States. That that change happened not in 1776, but in 1956. In God We Trust was not added to our currency until the next year, 1957. Similarly, Under God was not added to the Pledge of Allegiance until 1954. But with demographic shifts, white Christian America is finding that it no longer has the power to easily make such changes, especially at the federal level. So part of my intention this morning has just been to trace some of these historical inflection points that can perhaps help illuminate some of the dynamics in our current um, cultural moment. And I wanted to undergird them with demographic data. But before I move too quickly to a conclusion, I also want to take the risk of turning the mirror back on ourselves. On one hand, it is 
certainly true, and we should be proud that Unitarian Universalists and Unitarian Universalists, both historically and today, have been at the forefront of standing on the side of love, of helping bend the arc of justice, bend the arc of the universe toward justice, of making personal sacrifices to try to be on the right side of history, of inclusion. On the other hand, we need to acknowledge that there are ways that continue to influence us, ways in which Unitarianism and Universalism emerged out of white Christian America. And that today, Unitarian Universalism, despite some of our best intentions, remains in many ways a white European monoculture. There is, of course, much to celebrate about the ways in which we as a larger UU movement are more aware than we have been in decades about racial injustice. Really, you know, the 70s, the 80s, the, into the 90s, we sort of dropped the ball. After, we did really well in the 50s and 60s. We kind of dropped the ball for a few decades. And starting in the mid-90s, we started to get our, get our focus again as a larger UU movement on dismantling racism and dismantling white supremacy and moving toward multiculturalism. But we have to continue to be intentional about building a diverse multicultural congregation and larger movement if we're to be part of turning Dr. King's dream of the beloved community into deeds and to making that dream a reality. We must continue to practice what is sometimes called intercultural competency, the ability to move in and out of different cultural worldviews. So not just insisting that everyone just conform, you know, conform to this worldview that some of us grew up in, that I grew up in, in South Carolina, in a large Southern Baptist church, you know, saying that we need to learn that there are multiple ways of being in the world and we need to become increasingly competent with navigating them to build bridges between cultures, to integrate cross-cultural perspectives. That doesn't mean getting rid of white European culture. It does mean embracing a multicultural pluralism in which European culture is one among many, many cultures that is celebrated. But there's one other major piece that seems essential to me to mention. I've already laid out the ways in which I am unsympathetic to the racist and sexist and homophobic reactions to the end of white Christian America. Loss of privilege, again, is not the same as reverse discrimination. But as I reflect on the state of our country today, it seems to me that economic anxieties related to wealth inequality and income inequality are massively amplifying the racist and sexist and homophobic reactions to the end of white Christian America. If you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's hard to go to those top levels of the pyramid in which we're inclined to self-actualize and be our best selves and risk being vulnerable and welcoming those who seem to be different than we are when one is worried about meeting the basic needs for oneself, of one's family, of having enough food and clean water and security and safety and money and retirement and health care and a simple, decent place to live. We live in a time when tremendous shifts are happening all around us, and our universalist heritage challenges us to find ways of rising above the partisan divide, to do more than win in a way that leaves half the country behind and resentful. 
In Dr. King's words, we need to find a way that will win freedom not only for ourselves, we need to find a way that will appeal to hearts and to consciences so that we will win everyone in the process and our victory will be a double victory. There is cause for fear. There are also many reasons for hope. Our fifth principle as Unitarian Universalists is the practice of democracy, both in our congregations and in society at large. And in the words of the UU activist Chris Crass, may we each do our part within our particular spheres of influence to build up a multiracial democracy of economic, gender, and racial justice for all. Because without economic justice, without gender justice, without racial justice, we don't actually have a true democracy. And as we continue to reflect on where do each of us feel called individually and collectively to help build a world in which the inherent worth and dignity of every person, as well as the interconnection of life, are made to be at the heart of our culture, of our institutions, and of our policies, as we continue to reflect on what might that look like for me, what might that look like for you and for us, as we continue to discern, I invite you to rise in body or spirit. Let's sing together hymn 1028, The Fire of Commitment. We've got time. I'm going to tell you some more. Uh, there's a, it was a really fascinating, some of you have heard me talk about this before, but it's been a few years, that there's a fascinating line in President Obama's uh, second inaugural address, and when he, which he talked about that this, this dream that all people are created equal, which of course is not what it says in the Declaration of Independence. It says all men are created equal, right? But saying that this dream that we've been increasingly living into, and then he name-checked three moments in our nation's history. He said that, that dream that took us through Seneca Falls and Selma and Stonewall. He said that, that dream is with us still and motivated us at these different moments. So Seneca Falls, what, like 1848, so it's this early women's rights convention. Uh, because, of course, I, I remind myself from time to time, obviously I'm a white male, but that we, we haven't even, women have not been enfranchised in this country for a century, right? We haven't reached the, even the 100-year, you know, we get, we're all over Saudi Arabia for not letting their women drive, and by all means, we should be condemning that. But, you know, again, that's, I want us to look in the mirror, too, and see how that it's pretty recently that we've been trying to get on board with these things ourselves. So, you know, of Seneca Falls, of Selma. So, you know, not that long ago either, right, that we were, uh, as a country, fighting these uh, racial segregationist laws and that these nonviolent protests were being met with, you know, there were three movements to try to get from uh from you know to try to get to from Montgomery to Selma and that the and that those nonviolent protesters were met with incredibly violent um resistance uh by the white christian powers that be christian <laughs> right um uh getting white power confused with what Jesus would do uh the 
and then moving to um, Stone, you know, Stonewall. So this bar in in Greenwich Village that was just being regularly this gay bar that was being regularly raided by the police. And finally, people said, "We're mad as hell, and we're not going to take it anymore." And those of you who know that the history of Stonewall, that that uprising was led by the transgender community. It was the drag queens who who really started the Stonewall Rebellion that then catalyzed into the modern uh, LGBT rights movement. And so there is this, there is a way of telling American history that is a story of loss. There's also a way of telling American history from Seneca Falls to Selma to Stonewall, other ways of tracing it, that see it as an expanding centric, concentric circles of inclusion, of including more and more people as one of us, as part of um, you know, one, one becoming many, e pluribus unum, of becoming um, the many becoming one and unified. Uh, the other final thought I'll share with you is in thinking about this sort of classism thing and of really trying to wrestle with some of what we talked about last week, of seeing things from other people's point of view and the, the difficulty that that can be. One of the practices that we had to do in seminary was what is called displaced exegesis. Now, it's a little bit of a fancy word. Some of you may have done. So exegesis just means drawing meaning out. Eisegesis is the way we read meaning in and project meaning into this perhaps not in the text. Eisegesis is what is this text actually? saying. Uh, we just call them extra Jesus papers uh, instead of <laughs> a certain joke. But the, uh, so we had to do a thing called displaced exegesis, which was to say, what's the difference when you read this text from sacred scripture in your dorm room versus maybe reading it in an emergency room versus maybe reading it on a street corner of a poor neighborhood versus reading it in a barrio, you know, on the corner on the Mexican border and that uh, and so as you start to notice those things that maybe you, when you're in it, when you f- physically change your social location, the things you might notice, um, the first one that comes to mind that was really striking to me was, and this is not original to me, but the, um, that phrase that often gets trotted out from Jesus of Nazareth, that the poor will always be with you in this sort, and, and it's often interpreted from a place of privilege in this sort of... Um, you're just kind of giving a fatalistic sense, right? Of, oh, the poor will always be with us, so we can't, as opposed to saying, if you really knew the sort, you know, Jesus was a Mediterranean Jewish peasant, right? So he, he, he was, of course, always with the poor because he was poor, and the people that were with him were with the poor. And so to say, when, to hear that, the poor will always be with you, what that really means is you'll always be with the poor if you're doing what I'm doing. You'll always be in solidarity with those who are oppressed with those who are fighting for freedom and equality. So the ways in which we can begin to hear American history differently when we start looking at it from the perspective of workers and African Americans and American Indians and and the way we can start to see scripture and the newspaper and other things differently if we start to try to change our social location and see it from multiple different points of view and uh, really profound insights and uh, an opening of your heart can also happen as uh, Parker Palmer, uh, the Quaker activist, uh, often talks about there are two ways that your, hearts can, that your heart can break. Your, you know, that trauma can cause your heart to break open like a grenade causing shrapnel to hit everyone around you or your heart can break open in compassion. And so that, you know, that can really open you to a new way of being with other people and a new way of being in the world.